0: When I was in college for a couple of years, I lived in an apartment with three other guys. And uh, the, the four of us lived kind of on a spectrum of cleanliness. So uh, on the one end, you had a guy who was extremely concerned that everything was always tidy and always clean. That guy was not me. Uh, On the other end of the spectrum, you had a guy who was extremely cluttered, extremely messy. Uh, I fell somewhere in the middle, although closer to the messy end of the spectrum than to the clean end of the spectrum. Uh, But I lived in a room with the guy who at the time was my best friend, who uh, was the messy one in the apartment. Let me just uh, describe for a moment uh, the level to which the chaos got in his room and in his clutter. Uh, he would come home from school and he would study. And as he would study, he would place papers and books on the bed. Or he might come home from uh, playing uh, outside, you know, being, uh, playing basketball or whatever. And he'd place his uh, gym clothes or his equipment on the bed. There was one semester that the clutter reached the level. That he could no longer sleep in the bed, and uh, so instead of cleaning the clutter off of the bed, he moved into the living room, and uh, he slept on the living room sofa for most of that semester. You know, and the clutter just continued to grow to the point that he could no longer use his half of our room for its intended purpose. Now, now in and of itself, that wouldn't have been so bad, uh, but uh, remember, we had another roommate. Uh, whom I won't name because he actually goes to this church. But we had, we had another roommate who was exceedingly concerned with cleanliness. And so as, as this one guy's mess began to move its way into the living room, uh, the clean roommate became increasingly extreme in his efforts to clean it all out. Right, so uh, I remember there was one afternoon I was sitting at our kitchen table and I was eating lunch. In the middle of lunch, the phone rang. Now, remember, this is before we had cell phones, so I had to get up from the table, walk over to the phone, and answer the phone. I talked for just a second. I came back to the table, and he had cleaned all the dishes, including my lunch, <laughs> and wiped the table and put it all away. Right, so so he could be extreme in his cleaning. Now, why do I share that? Because if you asked him, okay, why were you so concerned about these common areas in particular being clean, right? I remember him saying, look, you can do whatever you want in your room. It can be utter chaos and unlivable, but in the common areas of the house, we want it to be clean. Why? Because everybody needs to be able to enjoy the common area, right? So if you clutter it up, our friends can't come over and enjoy it for its intended purpose purpose. They can't sit here and talk with us. They can't get into the room. It's stressful and it's chaotic, right? So, so what seemed extreme had a purpose. Now, I share that because the, the story we're looking at this morning is a story in which we're going to see Jesus do some extreme cleaning. Many of you are familiar with the story and, and you've read it a hundred times. We're going to see Jesus walk into the temple in Jerusalem, and he starts knocking over tables, dumping out money, driving away animals, and clearing out the temple courts of all of these merchants and money changers. It's the only time in the gospel narratives that we see Jesus get this angry to the point that he actually starts using physical force to make his point, right? And, and, and you read it, and, and if you have read this repeatedly or you're reading it for the first time, my guess is at some point you've read it and you've been like, man, Jesus needs to calm down. Why is he getting so upset? And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus has a very particular reason for why he got so upset. Right just like a person might might go to extreme lengths to keep the clutter out of their house Jesus goes to extreme lengths to keep the clutter out of the temple and there's a purpose behind it and here's the purpose we're going to talk about this as we walk throughout the passage Jesus is deeply concerned with worship Jesus cares about worship and what do I mean When we worship, right, we we just sang songs of worship. How do we do that? We we come into this room because we want to know God. And so we sing songs to God and we sing songs about his son, Jesus Christ. And we say, God, you are great. God, I worship you with what I sing, with what I say, with what I do. I attribute to God the honor God is due with my life, right? But in order to do that, I got to know him. Right, and Jesus wants everybody to know God and have the opportunity to worship God. And so when he sees some obstruction placed in the path of those who want to worship God, he's got to clear it out. As we begin this series, we're calling our new series, Behold the Man. First week is Jesus, Our Way to Worship. What we're going to do for about the next five weeks, right up to Easter, Each week, we will look at a different event in the last week of Christ's life prior to his crucifixion. What we're going to see with each one of these is that each of these events tells us something significant about who Jesus is and what's important to him. All right, Each event tells us something significant about the character of Jesus, that is what he's like, and his mission, what he came to do. All right, what we're going to see this morning as we look at this passage, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. As we look at this passage, we're going to see Jesus make a statement, uh, not so much with what he says, although he will speak, but more with what he does. And here's a statement. Jesus is deeply concerned that everybody in the world can come and worship God and have equal access to worship God. That is, Jesus is going to say, look, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, male, female. Wherever you fit on the socioeconomic ladder, wherever you fit racially, wherever you fit culturally or socially, Jesus says, I want you to be able to worship God. And he will go to great lengths. And and what we're going to see is Jesus ultimately will die and rise again to pave the way so we can worship. All right, so that's what we're going to look at in Mark chapter 11 this morning. Before we dive into the passage, then I want us to reflect on a couple of questions that we're going to come back to at the end of the sermon. But I want you to keep these just in the back of your mind as we walk through Mark chapter 11. First one is this. Is there room in your life for worship? Is there room in your life for worship? Or would you say, man, my life is so cluttered, there's so much junk, there's so much noise, there's so much activity going on that I never have a quiet moment to pray, to read God's Word, to honor him and know him as he wants me to know him? Is there room in your life for worship? Secondly, do you invite others into worship? And again, I'm not necessarily just saying into church, but I mean, do you actively use your life and your time and your influence to say what, what is important to Jesus? And that is, hey, God wants all the nations to know him and Jesus paved the way. So is there room in your life for worship? And do you invite others into worship? All right, so let's look then at Mark chapter 11. This story, by the way, is in all four of the Gospels. It's one of the few stories that we find in all four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The most detailed account is here in Mark. So we're going we're to spend most of our time in Mark but I'll I'll reference some things from some of the other Gospels because as we look at all four Gospels, that's why we have four, right? They, They paint a more complete picture than just one Gospel will give us. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read starting in verse 15. This is Jesus and his disciples that are being described. It says, "...then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple." and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd... Was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. So let me set the stage for you guys for for just a moment. The setting here is in, in Jerusalem, as it says, and the timing is Passover, right? Passover is one of the three major pilgrimage feasts of the people of Israel, that is, three times a year the Israelites are expected to actually travel to Jerusalem to participate in a major feast. So you have Passover, and then you would have Pentecost, right? Pentecost is later in the year, early summertime, around early to mid-June probably. And then in the fall, you have the Feast of Booths. Okay so this is the first of the of the 3 this is Passover and if you remember the, remember the story of Passover okay because this is significant as to why uh, all of this is happening here in Jerusalem you remember when the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt in order to get them out of Egypt what did God do well God enforced 10 plagues he brought 10 plagues onto the Egyptians and you remember the last plague was the death of the firstborn son. That is, the angel of the Lord went through Egypt in the night, and every firstborn son, from the lowest slave all the way up to the house of Pharaoh, every family with a firstborn son, that son died and so God told the Israelites, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to slaughter a lamb, right? To kill a lamb and you take the blood of that lamb and you, and you put it on the doorposts of your home. And when the angel of the Lord sees the blood on the doorposts, what will he do? He will pass over your home. He will not kill the firstborn son of any home that says we take refuge in God. And so they would paint this blood on the doorposts of their house. After that plague that was when Pharaoh finally says, okay, you guys can leave, you can go. The slaves that we have in Egypt, they can, they can depart and so they leave. So every year the Israelites converge on Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and what do they do? Well, they're supposed to, each family is supposed to sacrifice a lamb, Right? But, in addition to that, since they 're in Jerusalem, there would have been other sacrifices they probably would have had to make, right? So you only go to the temple three times a year, you probably have sin offerings to make. you might have had a baby over the course of the year, and so you 've got to make an offering to dedicate that baby. If you were poor, that offering would have likely been a pigeon, right? You might have had to pay a temple tax right so you 're coming with money from somewhere else, and you 've got to change it into the local currency so you needed a money changer. Now, I set all this up to say, if you're coming from a long ways away and you've got to sacrifice a lamb, usually instead of bringing your own lamb, you would wait till you got in Jerusalem and you would look around. You go, we can buy a lamb when we get there, right? So the merchants that we see in the temple, they were providing a service, right? A necessary service. People said, I I need an animal. They say, you can buy an animal. People would say, I need to change my currency. they go, you can change your currency here. Okay, it was a necessary service. In fact, usually they would set up on the Mount of Olives right next to the temple. Now, here's the problem they were set up right in the court, what's called the court of the Gentiles, in the temple itself. So let me show you just quickly a diagram of the temple, because I think this is going to help us understand, right? This is an overhead view, and I I know some of this you can't see super well from where you are, all right? But here is sort of the, the central portion of the temple. This is the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. You may remember that once a year, The high priest and only the high priest could go in there, right? And he would offer a sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, for all of the nation, for all of their sins over the past year, once a year, right? And then you have this holy place where you have a table of incense and you've got a a kind of a washing basin. You've got a table of bread. The priests would go in there and they would keep that incense burning and they would uh, make sure there was fresh bread to offer as grain offerings, right? So only the priest could go in here. Okay, move out just a little bit. You have the court of the priests where they would make uh, sacrifices right here on this altar. Move out a little bit further and you have the court of Israel, right? Um, Hopefully you can see there are like concentric circles for who can get into the temple. Court of Israel is where Israelite men could come. They would bring their animals, hand them off to the priests who would then go in and offer sacrifice. Out here you have the court of the women, right? Israelite women could come this far, but not into here. And then up here you have, and you you probably didn't notice this at first, what's called the court of the Gentiles, okay? The court of the Gentiles was a place that was designated where non-Jews could come. And they could ask the rabbi questions or the priest questions. They could learn about God. They could worship God in the court of the Gentiles. So as you look at sort of a a three-dimensional model of the temple, that big space around the edge, that's the court of the Gentiles. That is where all of this selling and buying and money changing is going on. All right, now now what else is significant about this is that as you look at this temple, and I apologize for the smallness of this map, but I want to show you something really quickly. Okay, the temple is located right here. Here's the palace. Here's the city. Here's the Mount of Olives on this side. Here's what's going on. Merchants who have a lamb or a sheep or money or whatever, instead of going around the temple, right? Say they're coming from here and they need to get over to the Mount of Olives. What, what did they do? Well, they took a shortcut, right? So they would take a shortcut right through the court of the Gentiles, back and forth and back and forth. So what you have when Jesus shows up, and you notice if you look a few verses previous to this, Jesus comes in the previous night, and he just kind of looks around at the temple, and then he goes away. And what he sees is all of this merchandising, all of this money changing happening in the one place that the Gentiles can actually come and worship. Right, so you want to know what makes Jesus angry. It's not that Jesus is anti-capitalist, okay? It's not that Jesus is just going, I hate selling stuff, I hate money. It's that right in the place of worship for the nations, these people have insensitively created a bazaar. Right? And, and, and the reality is that the permission for that would have gone all the way to the top. Caiaphas, the high priest, had moved all of this activity right into the temple courts. And it's a statement to say this, we don't care about the Gentiles. We don't care that those who are outside can come inside and know God. The one place they could worship Had been turned into a market. So what does Jesus do? Well, he walks in and he he walks over and he starts knocking over tables. And he grabs the money bags and he starts, he starts dumping out the money bags of the money changers. And in John, we see he'll grab a whip and he drives away the animals and the pigeon sellers and the sheep sellers and the cow sellers and he drives them out. And these people who are, are walking through the temple courts, Mark says he wouldn't let anybody do that. He stops people from carrying merchandise through the temple. Now, this is, this is one of those moments where you got to think, Jesus typically is portrayed as very meek, very mild. Most of what he does It's kind of like he hugs people, right? And stuff like that. And all of a sudden you've got this moment where the power of God is moving through Jesus and he goes, you stop it. Stop making my father's house a den of robbers where you're stealing from the outsiders the right to come in and to worship, right? So we read this and we go, man, why are you so upset? I was uh, reading this week about a family this past january in in uh georgia they went on vacation for a couple of weeks and when they came home somebody had moved into their house they had a squatter in their house he had actually changed the locks of their house while they were gone right so imagine you come home from vacation you pull out your keys and you can't get in So they call a locksmith. Locksmith comes out to to figure out what's going on and he hears movement and noise inside the house and goes, somebody's in there. And they realize this man has moved into their house. So what do they do? They call the SWAT team and the police who come in and they, they bust into their house and they pull this guy out and they arrest him. Now, if you read that story, I doubt you would be inclined to go, hey, why'd they overreact like that? I mean, chill out. SWAT team? Why? It's not his house. It's their house. What does Jesus say? Is it not written, My house will be a house of prayer for all the nations? See, the house doesn't belong to the Israelites, it doesn't belong to the priests. It's not his house. It certainly doesn't belong to the merchants. So Jesus says, get out. This is God's house. And he quotes two passages. One is Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven, when he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. What is Isaiah 56 talking about? It's saying God has a heart that not just the Israelites, but all the nations will one day worship God in this place. And that was the point of this court that you're treating as a bazaar. See, God always had a heart to draw those who were outside, inside, those who were restricted from worship, to the central place of worship. And so Jesus demonstrates that heart. The other passage he quotes is from Jeremiah chapter 7 this idea of the den of robbers. Here's what Jeremiah said to the nation of Israel He says, Look, you come to the temple and you offer your sacrifices. You kill your lambs. You kill your goats. But your heart's far from me. It says, because out there in the world, you cheat and you lie and you oppress the poor and the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. You've got blood on your hands. And then you come in and you offer blood in my temple. You seem to believe that just by stepping into this place, somehow that provides you cover from all the nasty stuff you're doing out there. And so you've turned the temple into a den of robbers, a place where evil people can find shelter. And Jesus says, no more. And so he drives him out because Jesus cares deeply about worshiping God. Okay, so, so as, I, as I walk through that passage, you may be going, okay, you know what though? Well, like, we don't have a temple I don't, I don't really know. I don't see anybody in the room this morning, you know, selling CDs or anything like that. So what does this really have to do with me? There is no more mosaic law for us, right? We don't, we don't obey the law. Here, here's, here's what this has to do with us. And, and so bear with me for, for just a minute. One of the things that we see as Jesus walks into the temple is this. There was a problem at the root of how the nation of Israel observed God's law, right? What was the point of God's law? God had given this law to say, this is how you can know me. This is how you as a nation can can follow me, can obey me, and then how you as a nation can reflect me. That is, I want the other nations to see a holy nation that reflects God and they will be drawn to the light of God. But here's the problem, right? The problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with the people for hundreds of years, really for thousands of years, they had done this kind of stuff. They had refused to to treat God's land as holy. They had oppressed the widow, the orphan, the poor. They had refused to treat God's temple as holy. So this system of drawing near to God through the law. It didn't work because the people were sinful. They needed some other pathway to draw near to God, right? The the pathway of the law wasn't cutting it. They weren't getting close to God and they weren't drawing others to God. I was thinking about this also this week. About about 10, 12 days ago, I, I came into the office. I walked up the stairs sat down at my desk, and I had an email from uh, our Creekside assistant from, from Grace, and it said, hey, just so you know, don't use your normal stairwell up, uh, the, uh, up to the office this morning, which I already had. She says, there's a bat in there, and uh, they need to remove it before you can get up there, and so use the other stairwell, right? So I thought, okay, I didn't see the bat. I'm not going to go back down there, but, but the other stairwell— is is covered in junk and clutter, right? So it's hard to get up the other stairwell. So I remember thinking like, I need a way down. I need another way up and down the stairs, right? I'm either going to have to just wait up here until they kill the bat, right? Or maybe I'll slip back down. We'll just burn the whole office complex down and start over. I need another path, maybe an elevator, something like that. Here's what we see in the temple is Jesus drives out the merchants, but there's this reality. Nation of Israel, you guys need another path. And so what's going to happen in a few days? Jesus will go to the cross, right? All day long, they're offering sacrifices in the temple, and yet they're not really drawing any closer to God. And so in a few days, Jesus would go to the cross on Friday night, and he would offer himself. He would say, all of these sacrifices you're offering, they're not drawing you close to God. And so Jesus says, I will be the offering once and for all. For all your sin, for all your robbery, for all your evil, Jesus says, I will be the offering. And then on Sunday morning, He would rise again. And here's, here's where this gets into why this affects us. Because Jesus would, would rise again so that God says, Jesus is an acceptable sacrifice. And then Jesus sends the Spirit. And here's what happens. When Jesus rises again, now He sends the Spirit. And because He's cleansed us, we become the temple. See that? You're the holy of holies if you believe in Jesus. The Spirit of God lives in you and lives in me. This is why Mark would say in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus died, look look what happens. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then what happened? The veil of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. What is that veil? That veil separated the holy of holies from the holy place. When Jesus died, it's ripped in half, so we can walk in. So the barrier of our sin, the barrier of the law, all of those barriers between Jew and Gentile, male and female, Poor and rich, all of those barriers before Jesus Christ are broken down, so all have equal access to worship. This is why Hebrews chapter 10 would say this Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what do we do? Let us draw near with a sincere heart, and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus cared so much about worship that he says, I'm going to die to pave the way, to open up a way so all can come in to the holiest of holy places. So, so the question for us is, do we care about worship and do we, do we draw near? All right, we, we started with a couple of questions. You may, you may remember these questions. First one is this, is there room in your life for worship? All right, let's be honest for just a minute. Have you, have you created a life for yourself where you're constantly distracted? by noise, right? It may be, it may be visual noise from, from a phone. It may be just constant activity. It may be you're constantly always running from place to place from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed at night and you say, you know what, I, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit and I've filled it with, with all kinds of clutter, all kinds of junk, and there's no room for worship those of you who have kids, maybe you've, you've had a moment where you've said, hey, I, I need you to go and, and do your homework now. And they go, okay. And so 15, 20 minutes later, you hear just, just loud music emanating from the room, right? Or, or maybe the opening to some television show that they're watching on an ipad right and you walk in and there's your kid they've got a a pencil in one hand and, and and they're watching a show over here right and they're eating cookies and they're talking to their sister and they're they're doing three other things and you go hey you can't get it done when all that's going on and they promise you they can right they are that talented more gifted than any other children. They go, I can't. I can watch a show. I can eat. I can talk to my sister. I can walk around the room and practice my dance moves, whatever it is. And then I come back and I can give my full attention to this. And you go, you can't. Turn it off. Remove the distraction. Sit at the table. Because you can't. Right? Our hearts and minds are the same. All right, we say, no, I, I can do this, right? In the midst of all my business, all my activity, I can give a portion of my, of my brain for a few minutes to Jesus, and I'm good. Can you? Right, maybe you are more talented than I am. I can't do it. So the question is, is there, is there room in your life for worship? Let me offer a couple of thoughts then to make, to make room. One is this, simply minimize distractions. There may be uh, numerous ways to do this. It may be that that you need to say, I'm not going to sleep with my phone right next to my bed, so that when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I see is not the phone in my face, but the first thing I do is I reach over and I grab the Word of God, and I read, or I pray. It may be that you you need to look at just uh, the daily rhythms of your week, and you say, you know what, we are always moving And we got to think about how to dial some of it back, even if it disappoints our kids. Maybe you say, you know what, every every weekend for the next six is is taken up with whatever, with whatever sport, with with whatever activity. And, and, And you say, you know what, though, we have a value as a family of worship. And so we're going to figure out how to arrange even your activities and your sports so we can be at church to worship. Right, and so so we minimize distractions and then secondly begin to create rhythms of worship in your life. Right, both individually and with your family. Individually, you know, it, it doesn't I wouldn't try to start and be like, you know what, I'm gonna have an hour and a half of prayer time this morning. You'll never make it. You say, I'm gonna create a rhythm every morning. I'm gonna spend 10 minutes in God's word. I'm gonna spend a few minutes in prayer and then I'll get up and move forward with my day. Maybe at the breakfast table, maybe at the dinner table with your family. You don't, you don't need to do a long drawn out devotional where they're falling asleep, right? But you, you read a passage or two. One of the things we, we've started doing as a family when we get Christmas cards from some of y'all and from friends is we, we've kind of put them on a little, ring. My wife put them on a little ring. And so at breakfast, we just flip to another one each morning and we pray for a different family each morning as a family, right? So we can see your faces and we can pray for what's going on in your lives, right? That's a a rhythm of worship, right? Do you have rhythms of worship in your life or are you full of distractions? So is there room in your life for worship? And then secondly, do you invite outsiders into worship? Do you invite outsiders into worship? Now, again, I want to say I'm not necessarily saying invite everybody to come to Creekside. That may be part of it. It may be you say to a friend that doesn't know Jesus, "Just, just come and visit church with me. But what I'm really saying is, are you actively looking throughout your sphere of influence to say, Who are the people who are far from God, right? Who are the people that I know that might think differently from me? Who are the people that I know that might even be in a different place economically than I am? Who are the people that I know that might be different ethnically or racially than I am? Who are the people that I know that they they just, they might look like me, but they might be far from God, right? Their life might be far from God. And you might look at those folks and you say, you know what? They've made terrible decisions, and they deserve all the consequences that have come their way, right? They deserve the consequences of their sin. And so do you. But Jesus died and rose again to draw us near. So do we actively look for those opportunities? Let me, let me even press a little bit Further. You know, when, when we think about Caiaphas the high priest and when we think about the, the religious leadership of Jesus' day, they were not known for leading people to worship God first. They were known for their political alliances, they were known for their money, they were known for their greed. So let me ask you this question whether it is what you post on Facebook, whether it is what you present in the community, when people think of you first, what do they know you for? Is it the allegiance to some tribe? Or is it for Jesus? And do you utilize the influence God has given you to say, I want to invite outsiders in to worship the living God because Jesus paved the way so that everybody can worship God. So... so. This was always part of God's plan. It says this in the Old Testament. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. All the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we we may walk in his path. That is, the temple was always meant to be a place where all the nations would stream to the light of God. Psalm chapter 96, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. God's heart was always for all the nations, all the people to come to worship him. So do you invite outsiders into worship? Let Let me offer this one last Application before we close in worship. I want you just for a moment. Just take a minute and and think about that person you know, right? That person in your sphere of influence that you, you honestly you might say, I don't really like that person, right? They they're not like me. They think differently from me. Maybe it is some relative or friend who is politically on the the, the opposite end of the spectrum from you. Maybe it is somebody at work that you go, man, that person is so far from God and their views and their actions and their activities are so far from God. I don't even really want to be around him. I want you to lock that person in your mind. And then the challenge is, is this week. As you're building rhythms of worship, you just, you just begin to pray for that person. Right? And if you're like me, your temptation is going to be like, I'm going to pray that they'll be like me. Right? That's what I'm going to pray. Pray that they'll know Jesus. Pray they'll understand that Jesus died and rose again to pave the way so they can worship. And then, as you pray, pray specifically God, just give me an opportunity to testify to that person about the grace of God. And then look for that chance. Will we make room for worship? Will we invite those who don't know God? To worship him until the day jesus returns and men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship him together this morning we're going to close in worship and as we close in worship then let's begin to prepare our hearts to make him real. let me pray for us father we thank you for the morning the opportunity to worship you we thank you that you have a heart that that everybody should know you. You want everybody to know you. You're not impressed by our status. You're not impressed by how well put together we appear. You recognize we, we need salvation, and you gave it in Jesus, that Jesus died and rose again to pave the way to you when we could not get to you. And so we pray that we would make room for worship and make room for others to worship you. We thank you, Father, for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.